Welcome to the next episode of Adam Asks. I'm uh, delighted to be joined by a very old person that I know. Not old as in age, but old as in how long we've known each other. Yeah, for. For that, good yeah. morning, Matt. Mr. Matt Farah, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good. 47 in two weeks, so you're probably I right. wasn't referring to your age. <laughs> I, think. I was just trying to remember when we first met. I think it was back in your Lightmaker days. Yeah, it would have been, yeah. 2004. So, nearly 15 years ago. Yeah. You're aging well. What's, right. what's the secret? Four children. <laughs> no, I'm, I, working, I'm working on that. Good keep, man. You're keeping fit and healthy there, aren't you? Yes, three days a week, training. Yeah. Um, get out on my bike when I can. Obviously broke my ribs six weeks oh, ago. How are your ribs? Yeah, they're a lot better. You're sleeping actually. now. Thank can you, you very much. Can you I, cough um, and laugh? Uh, two days ago, I uh, slept on my left-hand side for the first time in six weeks. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm back. The buggers aren't they? Ribs are the most painful things. Mm, breathe, you know, um, breathing. That was the thing. So obviously very painful for the first few days, but um, I really struggled to uh, to catch a, a breath. It was like I had maybe two thirds lung capacity. That yeah. was the thing. So you're constantly, you know, it's like being winded. <laughs> anyway, yeah. enough. enough you're, back about, the, you're back on the bike, yeah. Enough about my ribs. Um, no, back. I was going to go back on my bike on Sunday, but then we have a big party at our house on Saturday. So I'm not sure if that will happen, but I do need to get out on my yeah. bike because we have a big. Uh, charity coast to coast in September. Yes, so which I'm to, going to come on to later, actually. I need to train again. So, Matt, for those people that, who are listening who don't know you, can you give us a, a quick overview of the digital businesses that you've been involved with? Yeah, please? yeah. Um, so, uh, as you can tell by probably partially my accent, I'm uh, originally from Stoke-on-Trent, not Manchester. Um, and uh, I, I always loved design from a very, a very early age. Um, so I, I kind of wasn't very good at all the other subjects, but majored in design, design technology at GCSE A level, uh, and eventually went to Staffs University. Um, and really, my first kind of foray into business was accidental, I guess. Um, so I left Staffs in 95, and um, and actually was fortunate enough to be chosen for the New Designers um, show, which was in London, so that was all the graduates. Um, the university picked a few few of their kind of prize students out and took us down there. And um, whilst I was in London, obviously I was very keen um, to find a graduate position. I wasn't doing particularly well. There wasn't a huge amount of industrial design uh, graduate positions then. And uh, anyway, I met um, I met a guy. There was a huge stand at the uh, at, uh, at the business design centre, this thing called the Hot House. And um, I met a guy called Andrew Biggs who ran this program, and it was a graduate program, business program. And um, I thought, oh, this, this sounds great. So I went over to speak to him and I said, oh, where are you guys based? This sounds really interesting. You know, I hadn't thought about setting up on my own. But and he said, oh, we're in Staffordshire. And I was like, right, um, that's pretty close to me. Andy, I thought you'd be yeah. in London. I said, whereabouts in Staffordshire? He said, oh, I'm Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> Serendipity. <laughs> I was like, so let me get this right. You're in, the, you're in Islington, the business design center. Uh, and you're in Stoke-on-Trent. And um, I said, whereabouts? He said, oh, I'm in Longton. I mean. You can't make it up. That's about a mile away from where no I went way. to school. <laughs> anyway, we got chatting, and it, and it was it was it was a program that was set up for the ceramics industry, which was failing, and and, and continued to fail in Stoke. I joined that, and I did ten weeks business course, which was awesome. And I was introduced to some mentors and uh, uh, and uh, the Prince's Trust at the time, and uh, and I set up on my own. So it was um, 
very fortuitous that I met those guys and it helped I could stay local so I could keep my costs down. I won a couple of contracts very early on actually as a freelancer. So I was taught what day rate to, to, to charge and all those things that you're scared of as a graduate. Won some work with Wedgwood and, uh, and, and a few others. In total, um, I ran that business for eight years in Stoke. And we went from being just me um, doing CD-ROM authoring, which was you know before the internet was yeah. was the thing, to developing a piece of CMS, a piece of software, which was a CMS application um, that we sold to Yamaha Motors, NEC Europe, Office of Deputy Prime Minister, and then two thousand and one, um, we were hit by the the the, the bubble that well and truly burst. Yeah. Uh, in the dot-com uh, era uh, and so um, I think we built that business up to just over 20 people which is pretty good in Stoke um, we were almost one of the biggest employees at the time <laughs> <laughs> we certainly won a couple of local business awards that was great and I was able to get the best people from Staff University I always had a good relationship with them so we used to just basically handpick all of the um, the best talent they're all first class electronic media graduates is what it used to yeah. be called then so really enjoyed that, um, but um, you know I learned a lot as well. We built we built this piece of software, um, you know, as it was the dot com era. We all got very excited and thought, you know, dot com millionaire, here we come. So we raised some money. Uh, we raised about a half a million pounds from a business angel, and we tried to um, raise further money. So we looked at everything from private equity to. Oh gosh, we uh, we were looking at the Offex market, which I'd never heard of, yeah. which is a a very kind of small um, stock exchange in the UK. Um, anyway, it didn't happen. 2001, you know, had it say about that and we had to pull the float and we had to pull all the future investment. Um, you know, over the summer in 2001, the 9-11 attacks in New York pretty much put a nail in that coffin. Yeah. So, um, and I, I had to make about three or four people redundant as well at the time. No more than that, actually. There was about three or four people left. So we had to make about 15 people done it. And so after about two years hanging on to that business, decided to uh, to leave Stoke and had enough. We just had our first boy, Samuel, so and um, moved to Manchester, which is yeah. where I set up. So that, that was really my introduction to Manchester. So we moved the entire family. We lived on uh, on Deansgate and, uh, and we set an office up in the Parsonage, which was which was great. Um, so that was very much a part of a larger organization. So um, a couple of guys I met in Tunbridge Wells, uh, Rob Rob Noble and Adrian Barrett had a really cool company called Lightmaker. They were doing um, some amazing, um, which was then internet sites. So very early web stuff um, using a product called Future Splash Animator, which was then bought by Adobe, became yep. Flash. Um, so they were doing rich internet applications. They were doing some amazing sites for J.K. Rowling, a lot of um, a lot of game sites, and I thought that that's that's really cool. I can do that. So um, they wanted me to move down to Tunbridge Wells. I didn't want to do that, so I said, "Why don't I set up in Manchester for you?" So um, I pretty much owned the business. It was a it was a, 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 a kind of a franchise agreement with them, and uh, and again over four years we built that up to um, about 23, 24 people in Manchester. And did Lightmaker then evolve into Great Fridays? Did you, did you rebrand as Great Fridays? Or yeah, so what happened in um, so 2008, so that, again, it was my life tends to revolve around, or certainly the uh, peaks and troughs tend to <laughs> yes. revolve around uh, things that completely out of my control. Yeah. Um, so in 2001, it was a dot-com crash. In 2008, it was the the uh, you know the biggest recession since 1930, which was nice. Um, but yeah, we we were actually forced into Lightmaker got into a spot of bother globally. So we'd grown to about ten offices, 
and um, and literally overnight the cash <coughs> disappeared. Um, you know, the world was literally in crisis. Mm. A couple of clients went out of business. One in particular on me uh, owed us about two hundred and fifty grand, and uh, we were staring down the barrel of a you know bankruptcy. Basically, you know, it really was getting quite scary. We just had three children at home, and I was trying to juggle this business, and there was um, there was no help from anywhere. Basically, mm. um, <clears throat> what what happened was one of my clients at the time, which was uh, Peter Gabriel, who's a musician, um, we were doing building some cool tech for him. And he saw that we're in a in a spot of bother, and he said, "Well, how can I get how, do I, how can I keep my team?" <laughs> you know, whoa. Yeah. So um, to cut a long story short, um, probably the most stressful ten weeks of my life, um, uh, preceding the the uh, the first day we opened the doors for Great Fridays, it, it was um, it was a challenge. You know, getting getting um, getting that uh, up and running in a very uh, very challenging environment. You know, banks didn't want to know. That your business, one business was failing, you were trying to set up yep. another one. Anyway, we managed it. Um, uh, we started the business with Peter, um, a, a guy who who I mentioned earlier, who was one of the uh, kind of core people within uh, within Lightmaker, a guy named Rob Noble. He was running the uh, San Francisco office of Lightmaker, um, and and the, and enduring some similar problems. Um, he's English originally, so. He had to fly back to the UK, so we set up Great Fridays together. So myself, Robin, uh, sorry, myself and Peter, and then Rob joined slightly later. But we we set that up. You know, we we also saw a big change in the uh, um, in the way that design was being perceived, uh, and the way that the customer, the end customer, was being perceived. Mm. So, you know, eleven years on, everybody talks about you know the customer and, and UX is a thing like now, like very predominant. Whereas then. You know, nobody focused on the customer. You would do yeah. really shiny websites or really shiny CD-ROMs and you'd win awards because it was cool. Um, you weren't really tasked with effectiveness. Nobody said, you know, we need to really make this work, therefore go and speak to our customer. But yeah. we saw the change then. So that was the premise we set up GF, um, was really to be a lot more customer-centric um, and drive a lot of our client products and services through that. Um, and that's what we built over the over the eight years. Yeah, great. And no one ever said being an entrepreneur was going to be a, a, a stroll in the park, was it? And that story you've just recounted now, it pays testament to the, the yeah. highs and the lows that you've had to endure. And I think that's when, you know, after 22 years, was it 22 years? So 2014, so, so gosh, my brain's not working. Um, so you're 19 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, GF was acquired by EPAM, wasn't it, recently? Yeah, so EPAM Systems. Yeah. Yeah, so we'd grown GF to uh, about 70-odd people. So we had an office, main office was in Manchester, but we had um, about around 12, 13 people in London and the same in San Francisco, um, and then a very small office in New York. And so we'd grown, we'd worked with some amazing clients. We were working with MasterCard, Pearson, you know, Adobe in the US, Vodafone in the UK. You know, we really went for it. Um, and as a Manchester agency, we wanted to be globally renowned. So yeah. we didn't go in for, you know, we, we took a lot of flack initially because we didn't go in for local awards. And our team were a bit, you know, wanted to go in for it. And we said, no, we want to be recognized on a global yeah. scale. Um, and we did that. It was really a, a, probably another hit, really, in 2013, that a bit of deja vu again. You're thinking, you know, back to your point about taking some knocks. You know, we had one huge client in the US, which was Pearson, uh, and we were doing a lot of work with PayPal. And in the same week, we had the, a call from Pearson on the Monday saying that, um, you know, sorry, guys, we're restructuring. So all the projects you're working on, you've got 30 day notice. And then on the Friday, we had the same from PayPal. 
We were like, oh. uh, okay, so that's probably half of our revenue, and we're oh. up to about five fifty, six hundred grand a month, you know, just to survive at that point. Yeah, we had a long, hard look at ourselves and went, you know, do we really want to keep doing this? You know, service business is a nightmare, and we had a choice of either you know making half our team redundant and cracking on, or, or trying to sell our way out of it. So, mm. stupidly, Rob and I said, let's try and sell our way out of it. <laughs> And, well, I hope uh, you managed to sell your way out of it at the peak level, not the trough level. That you no, were I was thinking to. more sell a way out of oh, it. So get out there and do some selling. <laughs> Find <right>. some clients, <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so we did, and yeah. uh, and we survived. We we we'd got we we started to do a lot of work with partners like Capita, and we won projects for O2, yeah. and uh, which was great. And we managed to sell through that period, but the cash impact I had the following year was like unbearable. Yeah. And I think that's the point where we said. Through no fault of our own, we've grown a great agency, we've got a great brand, but you know, we keep getting these hits. Yeah. I got four kids at that point, and I thought, I've got to take some money off the table here because I don't have a pension, I don't have anything. Yeah. Um, and we went through a process, but EPAM uh, were, were, were one of several that were looking to, to acquire our skills. Yeah. So I think uh, the technology world started to realize that you know, having this human-centered strategic uh, team would be a real advantage. So yeah, so we... Through a process, um, sold to EPAM the October the 31st, 2014. Good. I was celebrating, I was in Mauritius. <laughs> good, good but yeah, we did it because, you know, we could put some money and yeah. look after my family, you know. it's uh, And you spent the last three years building a house, haven't you? Is that where the grey hairs have come from? You know, it took me six years. <laughs> it took me six years. So I bought the land in 2012. Was it? Wow, that yeah, long ago. Yeah, the, the, I think the motto there is if you're a... A designer and um, and slightly OCD. Yeah. Don't 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 build. Would you do house. it again? Uh, yes, probably slightly what, differently. What would Victoria's answer be to that? She loved it. She was yeah. the she was project managing it. I bet yeah, she was yeah. great at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She got to spend the money. <laughs> I got to write a check. Yeah. That sounds <laughs> no, like yeah. a good deal. That that's not fair. Well, it was, it was great. Victoria and I are very aligned in terms yeah. of a creative kind of vision for that, which really helps. I think yeah, when you're building a project together. Fantastic. And your new business and focus, mm -hmm. uh, Love By, has been inspired by your son's uh, sudden diagnosis a few years ago with type 1 diabetes. Yeah. Um, can you give us a bit of insight into what happened with Jacob and yeah. how things panning out? Yeah. So um, I stayed at EPAM for three years. Um, I enjoyed it. It was great. Um, but in December 2017, I thought I need to be dad for a bit. You know, I'd been traveling for all of my life, um, either been in London or in the US or somewhere away from the kids. So we had 12 months off and um, we, we spent um, February to April, managed to convince the school to uh, take the kids out. Um, but we, went, we were in Australia for eight weeks, um, which is where Jacob collapsed. So we, he was showing symptoms, you know, he was, he was going to the toilet quite a lot, he was drinking a hell of a lot. And then over 10 days, um, we noticed that he was losing a lot of weight. And then he was, um, you know, pretty violently vomiting on a daily basis. We thought maybe he's got a virus, it's warm, you know, we're in Queensland. And uh, and in the end, it was on a Saturday, actually, we'd all been out for the day and uh, his brother was in the in the sea. Yeah. But Jacob lasted for about 20 seconds and then came out, sat on the side, and I just saw this kind of bag of bones sitting there. I thought, uh, we need to do something about this. So we'd planned to take him into hospital the next day, actually, so we'd done yeah. some research. It wasn't until the evening, he was violently sick again, and uh, I just said, you know, I said to him, I said, I said, Jake, you're going to have to take you to hospital tomorrow, mate. You know, you're uh, somebody needs to look at you. And he said, oh, I'm fine, Dad, I'm fine, Dad. He was very lethargic. 
And um, I, when I left school, I worked in a hospital for 18 months. And I, I um, at the time, fortunately, I was told about diabetic ketoacidosis. So somebody that has diabetes, you know, you can smell like pear drops on their breath. Mm. Anyway, that's exactly what I smell. Wow. Why is that? How can you smell? Why, oh, why it's, it um, it's so, there's something called a ketone that's released into your, um, into your system. You're right. basically burning all the sugar in your muscle muscles yeah and, and uh, one of the outputs is a very sweet smelling breath oh. which is this poison that yeah. you accumulate called ketones anyway we rushed him in took him into a and e within 30 seconds they were great australian health service was awesome 30 seconds he was in he, he was diagnosed within 15 minutes wow he, he was on a, a drip within 20 minutes he was in critical care within an hour so we, we caught it i mean literally the consultant said if we'd have left it till the morning we might not have been bringing him in. I mean, he was that okay. No, no. So basically, all his organs were shutting down. Oh. Um, anyway, so that was pretty traumatic. Um, as I said, Australia was a was an amazing place for it to happen. Weirdly, because you know the healthcare system was just phenomenal. How does it compare to our, our health service? Uh, well, it's private, so obviously it's um, it's. Um, I don't want to get into politics. Don't get me there. But um, <laughs> we've got long enough to talk about politics. <laughs> yeah. uh, but. Um, Interestingly, all of the team there were Brits, says it all. Yeah. Um, so it was great. It was really, really, really good quality care. And he had a very passionate team around him. Um, and uh, to be honest, diabetes T1 is all about education for yeah. the families because of the, uh, you know, the way that you have to administer and, and manage that condition, you know, forever. Yeah. Um, so there's three days education that we had to do. And uh, to give you an example of Australian healthcare, you know, they told Victoria and I, they said, right, we're going to have to keep you here. You know, the three of you are going to have to learn how to manage this. And we said, well, we've got all the three kids with us. You know, what, what about them? They said, don't worry. We've got a school on campus. Here's Steve. And I won't try and do an Australian accent, but he came in. He's like, hey, guys, you know, come with me. You know, we're going to take you away while your mum and dad do this. And basically they they took the, the other three kids off and, and Amazing. did fun stuff with them. So it's brilliant. It could have been worse as well. So two days later, we were we were actually due to fly to Vietnam. Uh, had it happened there, I don't think yeah, it would have been, been a shocker. There. Same yeah. story. So yeah, a baptism of fire, really something yeah. very something we weren't prepared for. And, and how did you all deal with that as a as a family? We're pretty strong anyway. You know, having four children, um, you know, life's never <laughs> calm. <laughs> so you get used to juggling things yeah. and dealing with things, and uh, I think that probably helped. Um, it's you know obviously we were devastated for him. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a little Trojan Jacob, and uh, you know he he's dealt with it you know pretty well. And kids are very resilient, but it had a it had a weird effect on us. It was like it was a bit of grievance weirdly that came a couple of days yeah. later, and then really thinking about how we're going to manage this. But yeah. it was it was we explain it. It's like bringing a like having a newborn coming home again. Yeah. You know, that's, that's just that's making the all the adjustments. Yeah. yeah. And, and and it's so life, it's life critical adjustments as well. So if you give him too much insulin, you know, he could literally go into a coma. You know, if you don't give him enough, um, then, you know, that's long term complications. So it's a balance. It's a real, yeah. real balance. And how's he coping with the adjustment? Um, he does OK, actually. I mean, um, interestingly, uh, he's at the most critical stage now in a T1's life. So um, we'll talk about some of the products that we're developing, but in between the age of about 13 and, and 17, 18, mm. you know, you could imagine your your physiology is changing at a rapid rate. And um, and our education system thinks it's a great time to educate you as well, by the way. So you've got stress at school and exams. Yeah. You've got hormones raging. You know, your sleep's disrupted. Your, I'm not saying Jacob is, but certainly within that 
that age, you can go through puberty. Yeah. Um, you know, you might start dabbling in things that maybe you shouldn't. Yeah. It's a real challenging age. So Jacob's there's some peer pressure now. I think the management he's been pretty good. So if you get if you're into the detail, you know, he uh, you know, it's not easy uh, effectively sticking a, a needle into your stomach seven times a day, which is where he started, and then you know, taking the blood from your finger mm. even more so. So. That was a bit painful, but he got used to it, and I think it was more challenging for us. Um, but he's dealing with it pretty well now. He's, um, as I said, it's more it's more the peer pressure. It's more the ups and downs of being a teenager. You know, physiology changes on a daily basis. Right? So um, those are those are his key challenges. Yeah, yeah, and it must have brought you so much closer to the family than that that whole experience. Mm -hmm. And together now, working working together to just make sure he's he's all right and coping with all his daily challenges. Yeah. And, I, you know, we, we're very grateful in a way that this happened whilst I was off for a year. Yeah. You know, so we're re really able to focus on him and focus on those adjustments. And we're a close family anyway. We sit and eat dinner together and we chat about all sorts of family challenges. You know, Jacob's one of four and, yeah. you know, the other three are, you know, have their own challenges. Yeah, and right. I'm sure we'll continue to do so. Um, you know, so it's good and it's quite lighthearted. Hearted, you know, his brother, his elder brother is 15, Sam, and uh, he kind of, Uses it to his advantage sometimes. Yeah, you could imagine. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about Love By. What 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 are you trying to do with Love By? So yeah, I think um, <clears throat> spent a lot of time in the garden, as you said last year, building my own house and uh, learned how to lay Indian brick sets. <laughs> laid about two hundred square meters of those. Wow. So you spend a lot of time on my hands and knees cutting bricks, thinking about what to do. And you know, with Jacob's condition, um, you know, you start thinking, oh, okay, well, how can I? Um, how can I apply myself, you know, as a designer, as an industrial designer, or somebody that understands humans, you know, has great empathy? How can I apply myself to this? Um, so, so that was obviously immediately Jacob was diagnosed. I thought I've got to do something about this. This is a bit of a calling, you know. What do I do? How can I impact? How can I? What is my mission to make sure my son leads a you know the best quality of life possible? Um, and it wasn't really until May or June I sat down and said, okay, well. Maybe I'll develop a product or a service. And Love Buy as a brand really was a reaction. So I still, you know, I, I, for, for 20 odd years and being acquired by a very large software engineering company, I talked a lot about design process yep. and a lot about, you know, the impact that design can have on a commercial perspective. Okay, design thinking is what it was termed, but that was my drum, you know, that was my advocacy. Um, but then you know, spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, and suddenly everybody's a design thinker, and anybody can design projects, uh, products. And I thought, no, it's not that simple, right? You spend your life building a skill, and, and uh, you know you don't just pick it up by attending a couple of workshops. Um, and so I started to rebel a bit, a bit, a bit against process as well. Yeah. And I thought, well, people, effectively, if you want to design a beautiful product, whether it's a car or a you know digital device or whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, you need to get you know somebody to fall in love with it because they'll use it and they'll want it and they want it even more. They become emotionally attached. The brand really was a reaction to, um, I guess, the state of play in the world that I know. So it was really building products that people love. And then when I applied that to Jacob's condition, you know, I really wanted their product to be loved by families around the world. Yeah. You know, there's, there's 42 million people around the world with type one. Wow. Uh, there's 400, around 400,000 in the UK. I spend the majority of my time telling people the difference between type 2 and type 1. Type 1 is an autoimmune disease. Yeah. Type 2 is lifestyle, predominantly lifestyle yeah. generated. Right? It's basically your body's inability to um, deal with sugars. 
you know, you, you become insulin resistant if you're type 2. You're, you basically, your body attacks itself and stops itself from producing insulin if you're type 1. I mean, there's 440 million people globally with diabetes in general, and about 10% of those are T, T1. Right. So, um, so yeah, absolute focus on um, on T1. Yeah, that's, um, that's. And what's the product going to do? How's that going to help people so with the condition? You can imagine, right? Twelve months I've been working on this, and uh, you know, we use the this double diamond concept in design, where you start off with a brief and you go very wide, and then you try and come back in. You know, over the course of twelve months, I've been very broad in terms of the thinking. But what one one area I did spot constant with the type one is that. Um, you know, you have to manage three things really. What is my blood sugar now? What are the things that are going to impact on my blood sugar? And then how much insulin do I continue to give myself? Those three things. And um, to the second point, what are the things that are going to impact? The biggest, I guess, part of that is is nutrition, food, right? So every time Jacob eats, doesn't matter if it's a you know bag of crisps or a three course meal, mm. he has to counter that with an amount of insulin. So he has to basically you know look at food and understand the impact that that's going to have on him. So basically has to calculate the carbohydrates in there. He has to then think about if he's done activity, he's about to do some activity, uh, and it gets even more complex than that. I won't bore you with the absolute de detail, but if you can think about somebody's physiology, um, then it changes on a daily basis. The intelligence required to administer the right levels of insulin are, are, are extremely yeah, precise. And there's some amazing technology now that focuses on uh, what's called continual monitoring of blood glucose. So Jacob doesn't have to do his finger pricking anymore. He wears a CGM, which sits on his arm, and it can give him constant feedback about what his blood sugar is. It's Brilliant. amazing technology. Yeah, fantastic. He now wears a pump that also um, he could administer insulin um, without having to inject himself. So no injections anymore? No, he has a pump and he changes it every three days. It's a bit yeah. painful when he changes it, but it's, it's life-changing. And those two devices are phenomenal. Amazing. And they're now starting to think about how they connect those things. The bigger challenge still is when he's trying to calculate then, you know, his nutrition and what he needs to eat. And more importantly, the impact that has on him personally. Yeah. Because everybody's different. So there's lots of other markers that influence the way that you react to insulin and the way that you react to nutrition. So, um, you know, you would break down uh, fructose and you absorb it at a different pace than me. That might be based on your DNA, or it might be based on your gut bacteria, or it might be based on on some other um, biometric markers. So, um, so we develop, we focus in on adolescents for all the reasons I've just said. Um, so, there's about forty thousand children with T1 in the UK, and we're focusing on adolescent groups, and that's mainly because over those four years, because of the lack of control, their long-term complication risk goes up significantly. Mm -hmm. And once you've once you're once you've been exposed to that risk, it's it's irreversible. So even at twenty to eighty, if you continue to um, manage it really well, uh, unfortunately, those four years have already set set your life course to an extent. So that's where we're focusing. So we're looking at nutritional tools. We're looking at at contextual training, all driven by biometric data. Right. So how do we get a person's biometrics and then personalize this so that they're taking the right amounts of insulin, making sure that we're calculating the right nutrition and so on. But then also, you know, if if they're cons consistently low over a period of time, how can we give them um, education to make sure that that continues to improve? And wh where are you up to on the journey? Of it's, been, it's been interesting. Um, you know, I've spent my life helping other, helping our clients develop products. Yeah. Um, 
when 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 you develop one for yourself, <laughs> the rule book doesn't quite go out of the window. But, um, I think you become you can become very blinkered. Um, so for the first six months, we went. I, I worked with a company called Rod Design in um, in Southampton. They were awesome. We started, we developed a piece of hardware, and actually um, we we filed for four patents, and that was great. Spent a lot of money on that journey. Spent a lot of money putting the patent applications in, and then I I kind of corralled a group of um, what I'd say thought leaders globally to come yeah. together and help me validate that proposition. So we had some brilliant people, people like Paul Lindley, who was one of the founders yep. of Ella's Kitchen, Isaac Taylor, um, who's the used to be the CEO, CIO, uh, sorry, COO, I'll get it right, of Google <laughs> X. <laughs> so he was responsible for operationalizing Google Glass and uh, cartography, which then became Google Maps. Very smart guy. Um, so that kind of people, there's 10 of them were workshop in London. And I basically said, this is where I'm at, guys. What do you think? Yeah. Which which was needed. Um, and they all went, yeah, big vision, great hardware. Mm. Maybe you should focus on the data and the intelligence and the platform. So I had to gather myself and, and start to think about the, the intelligent layer, yeah. which I've been, which I started. So was that a bit of a gut design. punch then? Because you were thinking of going down that avenue and they then said, no, you need to go down. Yeah, uh, yes, draining. Yeah. Yeah, emotionally draining after a few days with them, but actually absolutely worthwhile. So, um, so we've gone on a slightly different in a slightly different direction um, now. And then I, I um, something else happened. I mean, I swore that I would never get back into the service business, and uh, I, I had a couple of non-exec positions with service companies, and um, uh, one particular company in in Manchester, which was Common Good. Um, I was considering taking a position there, and uh, and then found out that. Um, they were in a spot of bother. They basically had um, all projects stopped at the same time, and then they had this massive revenue hole for three months. And I wasn't aware of this until January. Mm. And Charlie came to me and said, we're in a bit of a pickle. So I said, well, okay, I can help. I can invest, and you can help me validating this new journey that I'm on. So we then spent the first three months of the year. Number one, we created Love by Services, or Love by Design, which, um, which continues to work with um, clients and I continue to help them to find clients. So we're doing loads of work in financial services and so on. But the whole reason for that is to drive profit into our purpose-driven project, which is our T1 mm. offering. So we put in a new model together, basically. And I didn't, I stumbled upon that, but for the first three months of the year, they've been building what is now a digital platform. Yeah. We've validated that in the UK and the US. So we've spoken to about 50 end users and validated everything from you know, subscription business model through to features of the product. Yeah. Um, and we've done that also working with Manchester NHS Brilliant. Trust. Um, so the journey has been create a product, validate it, pivot massively, develop software. All along the way, I've been talking to investors about putting some money into this. And they've either said, you know, you need to be a bit more focused or this is too big, Matt, or who are your customers? And my reaction to that has been, okay, well, I've, I'm going to continue to fund this myself. And now we've got a service business that's helping me to fund that. Um, but we do now have a product. I have um, within the T1, I have a dedicated team. So I've just recruited a very senior data scientist, obviously, through yeah. uh, Adam, which is awesome. Uh, he starts in July. And, right. um, and that'll really help me to kind of push on with that product now. And I've actually now started to look at investment as well. Because I think the proposition is, is, is now very finely tuned um the business model is very finely tuned a lot of the things that were tripping me up over the last 12 months like legal compliance medical compliance medical device 
compliance, you know, data protection around medical yeah, products. Yeah. These are all things I've had to learn. And, and so the business plan's pretty concise now. Fantastic. When, will it, when will it come to market, do you think? What's the, what's the, the, the so grand master plan, do you think? Uh, we're testing with, a, with a, a group of 40 adolescents at the moment. Well, yeah. we, we, we're about to. Um, it's going to be the autumn before we have that validation. We don't have to rush to market. Um, I think it's more important that we make sure that it's tested against the right audience. And if we can get it to market by the end of the year, at least a version of that, that would be it. That would be great. But as I said, I'm not. I'm not in a position where I need to rush the product out. Yeah. I need to make sure that it's right. The mission, you know, Jacob will go to university in four years. My mission really is to give him some intelligence to take with him when when myself and my wife Victoria aren't there. Yeah. And then try and apply that to all the other Jacobs around the world. Brilliant. That's basically what we're trying. So to you do. must leap out of bed in the morning knowing that what you're doing is going to solve so many problems for so many people uh, or, or hopefully it's good to be purpose driven yeah i spent a lot of time building a business where the purpose has been to make enough money to take the stress and the anxiety away yeah um that's really not there now and, and i'm driving a purpose and working with some amazing people that has have t1 that are kind of really um coming to terms and and, and leading a normal life some amazing people that are part of the Massive network globally of, that are trying to solve this problem um, and not have the same pressures and feel like I'm going to have an impact. More importantly, you know, for my wife and I to talk about this at home and to and to to to, to try and you know build that you know not guarantee but really try and get the best quality of life for our son. And I know it sounds cliche, but every day must be a school day. You must be learning so much about type one diabetes every day. Yeah, I think I class myself as a bit of an expert now. To yeah. be honest, well, yeah. just listening to you now, yeah. I'm totally engage what you're saying it's like mm -hmm. you've known known the topic for years there's a lot of data scientists within um you know with even within the hospitals you know data is absolutely key to um you know key to unlocking some of the more um complex parts of this um because we are we're only just really finding out about personal health you know so how can i take my biometrics how can i take all of the data that makes me who i am and apply health to that plus you know talking to consultants that have dealt with T1 patients for 40 years and understanding the psychological impacts and understanding that, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing time to see that coming together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wish you all the very best of luck with, with Love Bar and yeah, look forward to seeing how it develops over, over the next month, months um, and years. And I think we've come probably to the natural, natural conclusion. I'd love mm -hmm. listening to your entrepreneurial story it's you know a classic case of you know ups and downs and dodging bullets and yeah you know, crawling so, crawling you spend a lot of time on your knees <laughs> <laughs> exactly i feel like i'm on the, my knees at the moment but anyway lots that's another story but i'd like to finish the podcast um if you could leave us with one piece of parting wisdom that might help some listeners who are on their own entrepreneurial journey what mm. what might it be yeah it's hard to distill it into one piece <laughs> i was thinking about this i definitely talk to as many people as you can about you know your ideas or your challenges i think um ha having a having a group of um not 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 necessarily friends or family as well because they like to tell you what you want to hear but um just just being able to go to um you know people that you respect in business and, and just ask for their advice and be very open about what your challenges are i found that most of the the challenges that i've always had you know have always been shared with others and um, so definitely, and, it, and again, it sounds like cliche, but, you know, sh share as much as you possibly yeah. can. And I, I've been fortunate as well to work with co-founders over the years. And, and that's, all, you know, 
pretty critical. You have people around you that can tell you you're mad. Or... You're not expected to know all the answers, are you? No, absolutely not. And um, I, I struggled for that with that for a while. You know, I think growing up in Stoke and you know being not the most confident, you know, teenager growing up and starting a business. I think uh, I, I felt like I wanted to own it and prove something. But then the older you get, you think actually no, that's not the way. You need mm. to really open up and share, and so valuable. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you and all the very best of luck. Thank you. For our next episode of Adam Asks, I'll be handing over to my business partner, Richard. He's sitting down with John Shinnick, who's going to be talking about his career and what he's learned over the years. We hope you can join us.